0: Second Kings chapter five. Second Kings Chapter Five Some of our lives declare daily that He is worthy. And some of our lives don't. Some days our lives declare. That he is worthy. And uh, some days our lives don't. Oh, that there would be more that do than don't. Let me show you a story in 2 Kings chapter 5. What do you know about a guy named Gehazi? Anything? If I were to give you a 3x5 index card handed out this morning when you came in the door and said, write everything you know about Gehazi down on this 3x5 card, how many of you would fill up at least one side? Don't raise your hand. Uh, Yeah, he's a a figure that's not mentioned very often. But he's mentioned uh, a couple times in relation to a guy named Elisha. And one time specifically in relation to a guy named Naaman. What do you know about Naaman? If I give you a three-by-five card, could you fill out a little bit on Naaman, Wayne? Yeah? A little bit on Naaman? Those of you who were with us way back in the school, a long time ago, I preached a a series on... uh, Old Testament pictures of the gospel and uh, we did one message uh, entitled Naaman and the gospel and I'm going to I'm going to fly through the story of Naaman this morning because I don't have time to tell you the story of Naaman and then also tell you what I want to tell you so I just got to go through it because I have to so I can tell you what I need to tell you but uh, if you want the full story on Naaman and the gospel uh, go online you can look on our website and you can go back uh, Several months, a couple of years now, I guess, and uh, look for Naaman in the Gospel and listen to that message. It'll give you a fuller understanding of of the first part of Chapter Five. Uh, but we're going to tell the story this morning. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It is, uh, as I said and as I preached uh, way back, it is a beautiful picture of the Gospel in the Old Testament. And we don't often think about the Old Testament t- uh, teaching the Gospel, but it does in numerous ways. Frankly, if you don't really understand your Old Testament uh, to some extent, you can't fully understand the Gospel. And so uh, it is a beautiful picture uh, of Naaman coming to uh, healing. And uh, we're going to go through that quickly this morning. And then I want to tell you the story that immediately follows, because it is uh, it's where I want to make really uh, pretty much a single point. Okay. second Kings, chapter five, says this now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, he was a Syrian. And uh, you're going to notice a couple things right here, right off the bat, that Naaman was a great man, because it's going to say that, right? He was the captain of the army of the king of Aram, and he was also a great man. Pretty easy, right? Uh, He was a great man with his master, and he was also highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram, the man who was also a valiant warrior. And let's stop right there. See, uh, the first thing the author wants us to know is that Naaman—he's highly exalted. He's a captain. Uh, he's a warrior. I mean, this guy—this guy is Clint Eastwood or Charleston Heston or you know Mel Gibson and one of his. Uh, give me what's the Mel Gibson? What's the name of Mel Gibson? Braveheart. Yeah, he's 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 Mel Gibson Braveheart, but not with all the morals and values probably. Okay. Uh, you know this. If you get a picture of this guy, and here's how. This is how you want to read your Old Testament stories. You really want to put it in in a cinema form in your brain, okay? So you just put, you just put Clint Eastwood or, or Charleston Heston in there right now, and you just see this hard dude right here. He's the captain of the army. He's a bad man, all right? But he's respected by uh, his king. Uh, he is uh, faithful to his king. And it says that because of him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. What that's referring to is the Jewish tradition says that when Aram uh, defeated the nation of Israel, uh, that this is the guy who shot the arrow that caught King Ahab in the heel and killed him, giving Aram the victory. And so uh, this guy is renowned. He's well-respected, but he's also renowned. His name's been floating around out there. Okay? So when he shows up, he's just the kind of guy you respect. But he's got one problem. You see that at the end of verse 1? Uh, he just so happens to be a leper. He's got uh, the one issue that we all will face is that he's going to die. He just so happens to be dying slowly and uh, painfully. Uh, It's obvious to everyone who's around, although he is highly exalted, uh, the evidence of his illness is on his face, quite literally, perhaps. Verse 2. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. That's a Jewish uh, Hebrew Israelite girl, okay? And uh, she waited on Naaman's wife. So you get the picture here? Highly esteemed guy, captain of the army, well respected by his king. Uh, he's got one little problem. And then they jump, verse 2, straight to his house. And his wife has this servant girl who became a slave through the battle with Israel. She got taken captive. We don't know how old she is. I mean, a little girl, you expect she's maybe 9, 10, 11. Right? We've got some young ladies in the audience. And you can just imagine this is a little girl taken captive. and Now she's a slave in a, in a foreign pagan land. It doesn't really get much worse than that. And we'll come back to why that's important in just a little bit. But she was from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. She was a servant. You have the idea that she's a faithful servant. Verse 3, she said to her mistress one day, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. That's back in Israel. Then he would cure him. The prophet would cure Naaman of his leprosy. Verse 4. We don't really get the backstory, but the inference is Naaman's wife communicates what this little girl has said to her husband. Fast forward to maybe a day or so, maybe that very evening. Verse 4 says, Naaman went in and told his master, that's the king, and here's what he said. Thus and thus spoke the girl. It really, really wasn't... Too important, I guess, for the author to record that, or maybe maybe he's quoting Naaman directly. Maybe Naaman didn't think what the little girl had to say was too important to relay it all to the king. But essentially he says, Hey, this little girl had something to say to my wife and listen to what she said. Essentially he's for some reason asking permission from the king to follow up on what this little girl who's not even named in one and a half verses of all of Scripture has to say. Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then in verse 5, you, you see that the king grants his captain permission to go check it out. Let's see what's going to happen here. Then the king of Aram said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Stop right there. Why would he do that? The, what did the little girl say? There is a prophet. There is a prophet in Israel, technically, specifically in the area of Samaria. There's this one guy, and if he goes, he can be healed. He goes to his king, gets permission. The king says, okay, let me write you a letter to the king, the king of Israel, not to the prophet. Let's just skip over him. We'll go straight to the top. How about that? You want permission to go? I'll send you a letter. I'll give you a permission slip, give you everything you need. Why don't you go right to the top dog? Well, he departed and he took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of loot. Okay? What do you expect Naaman is hoping to do? He may figure he's going to have to buy from his enemy, from his enemy's king, this healing that this little no-name girl has spoken of. So he's going to take... Hey, Mom. I didn't even see my mom. My mom's sitting right there. Uh, Just kind of odd. She lives in Florida. She's here this morning. Sorry. Sorry. He's going to take all this stuff, not because he needs all this money, not because he needs all these changes of clothes. These were gifts, okay? That's why he has it. You're going to see that come in just a second. He brought the letter now, verse 6, to the king of Israel saying, and again, notice we've just skipped the prophet. We skipped what the little girl said. We're, we want the healing, but we're, going to, we're not going to follow the instructions. We're going to go straight to the king. Maybe, Maybe if we go the higher, the better. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, and now... As this letter comes to you, behold, I've sent Naaman. This is one king talking to the other king. And by the way, they're enemies. Behold, I've sent Naaman, my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Great response here by the king of Israel. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God? Am I God? I I don't think so. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, and you get the idea that this, this uh, king of Israel, maybe Jehoram right here specifically, he sits back and he says, now these are the guy, this is the guy who shot the arrow, supposedly, that killed King Ahab. And now he's coming here and he's brought all this stuff and he's got his letter from his king. Something's not right here. See what he says at the end of verse 7. But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel or literally an occasion against me. He thinks there's some sort of plot going on here. Something must be up. Well, what he realizes is, is, is that it makes no sense, given the instructions of the little girl, for him to be approaching the king at all. It's out of place. He's not the right person. It's not the right time or the place or the person. Verse 8, we don't know how, but somehow Elisha, who is the successor to Elijah, the prophet of God, the chosen spokesman of that day, the mouthpiece of God on earth for both mercy and judgment to the nation of Israel and to all those who surrounded the nation of Israel, somehow God helps him to know what's going on in the king's chambers. Verse 8, and it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Listen, uh, why have you torn your clothes? This guy's not seeking an occasion against you. Let him come to me and underline this. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. That very thing that he had ignored, that he took lightly. Go see the prophet, the man of God in Israel, specifically. You're going to find him in Samaria. Go find him. Well, let's just go to the king. Uh, King, send him to me. And then he'll understand that there is actually a prophet. There is one in Israel who can help him. Well, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses. Watch this. John Wayne's going to ride up here. Uh, With all his glory, with all his power and all his might. I mean, he's got his whole posse with him here, right? He's got his his whole... uh, pack. I mean, he travels with his entourage, if you can imagine this. And so he's got all these chariots and horses and all this stuff that he's brought, all this gold, silver, all these changes of clothes, all this stuff that he hopes to impress with. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. And he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. The picture here is that he rides up. He pulls up to the outside of Elisha's, I'm sure, humble abode outside his tent. And he just sits there. And he's waiting for a reception. He's waiting for a grand reception, most likely, given his his grand approach. But look at what happens here. Verse 10, great verse. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Did Elisha go out? No, he just sends his slave out. He sends his servant out. And he's going he's gonna to begin the process of humbling this valiant warrior, this great, highly esteemed man. So he sends him a servant. And here's what he told the servant to tell Naaman. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Somehow he knows exactly what Naaman needs. That's another sermon for another day. Somehow he knew what, uh, what transpired in the king's courts. Somehow he knows why Naaman is rode up and stopped outside his tent. He sends a messenger out and he says, Tell him to do this. Very straightforward, very simple, very clear. Go, wash, where? In the Jordan? How many times? Seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Not a big deal, right? It's a little odd, however. And you see in verse 11, it strikes Naaman. The wrong way, but Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, "Behold, I thought that surely, surely he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and and wave his hand all over the place and and cure the leprosy." You see what Naaman? See the heart of Naaman. He wanted to come. Uh, probably doesn't even get off his horse. Waits outside. He expects the servant of God, this this man of God, who is. Understanding his thinking way below the king, even of an enemy king. And so he's waiting and he expects this guy to come out, do some hocus pocus, wave his hands, smack him on the forehead. uh, And he's going to be all better. He can give him whatever he wants by way of uh, by way of pay, by way of payment. And he can be back on his way to Damascus. To Syria. Doesn't happen that way. Elisha sends a servant out and says, hey, here's what you do. Uh, you go and you wash. What do you mean wash? Go to this river. What river? The Jordan River. The Jordan River. What river is that? It's the river of God's people. Here's what you need to know, that uh, the river of God's people, the Jordan, is nothing, nothing really to look at. In fact, it's kind of dirty. Uh, if Naaman were to go and wash in this river, uh, physically speaking, he might come out more dirty than he was when he went in. Day. It's kind of a dirty uh, river. There's nothing, it's nothing glorious or grand to look at. There's nothing that would make name and say, ah, the great river Jordan will cleanse me. And he's going he's gonna to confess to that. Verse 12, Are not the uh, Bana and the Farpar the rivers of Damascus, that's back where he lives, right? These are beautiful rivers in comparison. Are not they uh, better or more beautiful than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I have just stayed home and washed in them and been cleaned? So he turned, sad verse right here. So he turned and he went away in a rage. Well, luckily, he's got pretty smart servants himself. This is what his servants do. Then his servants came near and imagine they're riding away now. He's like, I don't want it. That's foolishness. Go to some dirty river, dunk myself down seven times. That's foolishness. Let's go, boys. We're going home get all of our stuff, we're heading back. It's nonsense. One of his servants, or maybe a couple, they catch up to him and uh, they, they stop him on their way out of town. And they say, listen, uh, you may want to think about this a little more. You may want to reconsider this. And exactly here's what they say. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, underline great thing, to do some great thing, would you have not done it? They speak right to the heart of Naaman. They speak right to the heart of His his being. They speak to His pride. They speak to His desire to elevate Himself. They speak to His desire to be depending on Himself. Wouldn't you have done it if they'd asked you to do some great thing? Climb Mount Everest? uh, Cross the uh, Bering Strait? uh, You know, any grand, humanly speaking, challenge you can think of. If they'd asked Naaman, his servants say, "Would you probably, wouldn't you have done it?" But the truth is, they've only asked you to just go into this dirty little creek. It's kind of foolish, yeah. Dunk down seven times. When you come out, they say you're going to be clean. I mean, it's pretty simple, pretty easy. Nothing flashy. Does it really make sense that you wouldn't, you wouldn't? Have the faith to try that when you would climb Everest instead? Well, something in their words, something in their words changes Naaman's mind. Look at what happens here. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. He did exactly what he was told to do now. All right. He had been ignoring all the instructions previous to this. And now he says, "Okay, let me give it a shot. By faith, He follows the simple, clear instructions. This is the one way you can be cleansed from your disease. So he does it according to the word of the man of God. And look at what it says in verse 14. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You know what I would say? I would say he was born again. Flesh of a newborn babe. Now, again, I won't spend the time to, uh, to belabor the obvious. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. A guy who's ill, he's dying. Uh, by all indications, he's got a lot going for him. He knows it. Everybody else knows it. He's got this little problem where stuff you know, is beginning to die on his body. Fingers, toes may be falling off. It's obvious to the world. It's not a pleasant uh, it's not a pleasant appearance to have to carry around. And so although he's lofty in some ways, he's got this one big problem, and it's a symbol of the fact that he's he's got to face his own immortality, or his own mortality, excuse me. And so he finally comes to the place where he has to humble himself, do exactly what the man of God said by faith. He has to be willing to to do what doesn't elevate him, but what gives all credit and all glory to the one who actually does the cleansing? See, as he goes down and he dunks the first time and he comes back up and he's dirty, he's done nothing. As he goes down a second time, he's done nothing. As he goes down a third time, he comes back up and he's still dirty. He's starting to think, this is ridiculous. I just look like an idiot here. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the, uh, uh, the prophet Elijah tells him to put one finger in his ear, uh, pat the top of his head and whistle Dixie while hopping on his left foot. That's the idea. And he says, ultimately, it's, it's worth the problem. All right. Part two of the story. Here's the rest of the story. Verse 15. We get a little more commentary on Naaman. We see now how his heart is changed. After his salvation experience, if you will, let's see now how his attitude, his theology, his position towards this God of Israel, even towards this river of Jordan, this land. In comparison to his homeland, let's let's see how he's changed. Verse 15, when he returned to the man of God. All right. So if you if you're still running this thing through in the cinema of your head, uh, he goes down, comes up that seventh time and he's he's cleansed. And he's amazed by faith, doing something foolish through the foolishness of this, this healing process uh, and his his obedience to it. He's healed. And so he gets up, and apparently he runs back now to the tent of Elisha. Okay? And here's what he does. When he returns to the man of God with all his company, and he gets everybody to go with him, right? I, I get the picture that he just runs back on foot. He never even gets back on his horse. He's wet. He's got his robe on, and he just, he just runs wet all the way back to Elisha's house. And now you see he came and he stood before Elisha. He's not on his horse. He's not lofty. He's not lifting himself up. He's not there with his caravan to impress this man of God, this prophet in Samaria. He just runs and he's face to face, dripping wet now with Elisha. And he stands there and look what he says. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. See, it was common common in that day and time for you to believe that your God was a God of a region. And he says, you know what? There is no other God aside from the God that is in Israel. His whole theology is changing here. So please take a present now from your servant. You see, he was elevated, and now he's the servant of this lowly prophet. And he's not trying to buy his healing. He says, Can I just can I just gift something to you? How can I be a, a blessing? Not trying to earn it in any way. He says, My heart is to give you everything I got. My heart is to be your your humble servant. See the change of heart. Keep going, verse sixteen. But he said, "As the Lord lives," this is Elisha speaking, and this is where we get to uh, our point for today. But he said, "As the Lord lives, before whom I stand." Underline that little phrase, because I think it's one of the most important in all the chapter. As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, it's Elijah's way of saying, uh, I live my life before the eyes of my God. I'm, as I stand before Him, let me give you the answer to your request to give something to me. He says, I'll, I'll take nothing. I will take nothing. What can you give for this gift of healing? Elisha says, as I stand before God, there's nothing you can give to make absolutely sure that this pagan uh, captain understands that he was saved by the grace of God. He was healed only in obedience and in faith. He says, I'll have nothing from you. Could he have taken something? Probably could have. Wouldn't have been a problem. But to be absolutely clear that this is the complete work of God, he says, I'll have nothing and he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so you get the idea here in, in, this, in, this, in this scene that Naaman's like, listen, take this stuff. I'm healed. And Elisha's just saying, no, I don't want it. Take it. No, I don't want it. Take it. I don't want it. I don't want it. It's not required. Verse 17, Naaman said, okay, if you're not going to take it, do this. Please let your servant, notice, he, notice his position now, not high and lifted up, not lofty. You get this guy who was way up here. Now he's, he's down here. Of his own accord, by the way. His heart has been changed. He says, okay, if you're not going to take a gift, uh, can you do this for me? Here's what I want you to do. If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord, the God of Israel alone. Here's the idea. Remember I told you that gods were regional in their minds? Okay. Uh, this God of Israel, uh, he, he now was a believer in this God of Israel. He's already said he's the only God there is. But his habit was that he worshipped the God of the place where he was. And so now if he goes back home, the God of his region, in his mindset, in his history, in his flesh, in his, in his, uh, in his habit, is the God of his region. And so look at what he does. It's an amazing thing here even though he's got the burden of his old his old religious uh, connotations and his old religious ways and systems, he says, I've got to overcome that. This is the only God there is, so here's what I'll do. Elijah, give me a couple carts of dirt, and I'm going to take this dirt back, and I'm going to bring Israel and the God of Israel to where I live, and I'm going to set up an altar, and I'm going to worship only to this God. What, what a tremendous heart change that is. Isn't that amazing? His heart had been... His heart had been been stolen by the love of his, this God that had so healed him. What a beautiful story. 18. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. So he asked for the earth, and now he asked for a pardon. Look at this. Another great evidence of the change of his heart. When my master goes into the house of Rimnon, that was the foreign pagan king of that area. Of the, that was a Syrian king. Okay? Uh, Hadad Rahman, Uh, it was, uh, I believe, as I remember correctly, it was a god of rain and and agriculture, etc. His king would have him, as his assistant, go in and worship with him. And he would assist his king uh, by offering his arm for the king to rest on as he knelt, etc. And Naaman knows this is going to continue to be his life. and So not only does he ask for the, the loads of dirt to go back so he can set up an altar to the one God of Israel, he says, Listen, um, Elisha, I- I've got to know something. I've got to know something. And he's searching his heart here. And this is what he says In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant, referring to himself, when my master, referring to the king of Aram, when my master goes into the house of Ramon, this pagan king, to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of this foreign God that is no God at all, I now understand. When I bow myself, in this house, the Lord, pardon your servant in this matter. You see the heart change? See the, the change of theology? The, the change of desire? God's got him fully and completely. Fully and completely. And he wants to leave nothing to, nothing to chance here. And so he says, Elijah, uh, will God pardon me in this? My heart isn't in it. My heart isn't there worshiping. I'll be there for my king. I'll be a faithful servant to him. He'll lean on my arm. And I'll go down with him as he bows to this no God at all. But understand, my heart is with the God of Israel. May the Lord pardon his servant when I go and I'm faithful to the one I'm serving. And look at what uh, Elisha says. He said to him, go in peace. Real simple. I think Elisha knows his heart. Uh, Preston, you want to worship sermon right here? I think there's one in these two verses. God sees the heart always and not he's not ever concerned with the formalities. And Elijah knows this and he says, go in peace. So he departed from Elisha some distance. What that means is, is that he's on his way home again. All right? Now keep this, keep this movie rolling in your head and watch this. Here comes Gehazi. Verse 20. But Gehazi. Who's Gehazi? He's the servant of Elisha, the man of God. He is, in essence, Elisha's right-hand man. He is to Elisha what Elisha was to Elijah. Uh, you might argue that as Elisha's right-hand man, just like Elisha was the right-hand man to Elijah, he perhaps might have been in line to replace Elisha in prophetic leadership, if, but not for this following story. But, uh, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, or he said to himself, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean. Now notice that he calls him this Naaman. He's not really a, he's not really a very compassionate guy right here from the outside, is he? He, see him, he sees Naaman as an enemy. He sees him as the captain of the army of his enemy. And he sees that Elisha refused to take anything from this guy for the healing that he gave him. And he doesn't get it. And so he's thinking to himself, why is it? Why is it that my master has, you see what he says, spared this Naaman? In other words, why didn't he take advantage of this wicked man? I mean, he gave him his life. Why not get something in return? Certainly, if there's anybody we can take something from, certainly if there's anybody we can take advantage of, it's got to be this guy. Why is it that my master has spared this, this Naaman, this Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought? As the Lord lives, where did you see that phrase just a few verses back? You heard it come out of the mouth of Elisha. Sounds awful spiritual, doesn't he? As the Lord lives. I'm not going to stand before my God. Look what he says. I will run after Naaman. And I'll take something from him. What do you think he's going to take? Gold, silver, changes of clothes. Yeah. He's going to receive payment. Now watch how he does it. He's not even up front with his underhandedness. Uh, So Gehazi pursued Naaman. He chases on foot after this uh, caravan. And when Naaman saw one running after him, you get another great commentary on the heart change that happened in Naaman. He came down, Naaman jumps off his horse. He sees this guy running after him from Elisha's tent, from that same general direction maybe. He jumps down, and this guy looks worried. He says, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? Is all well? It says that when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He's got a whole different heart, doesn't he? Verse 22, he said, All is well. Well, that's true. My master has sent me. What is that? That would be a lie. And here's what my master has said. Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets. That's like a group of of young men in training to be prophets, okay? They weren't actually sons of prophets necessarily. They were a group of, of young guys training for the ministry. And he says, A couple of these guys have come to Elisha. And Elisha sends me... Uh, to chase after you and says, hey, uh, these guys showed up. Uh, you've got all this stuff. Maybe you can be a blessing to them. What do you call that? That's a lie. Elisha didn't send him. And there was no such, no such visitation from the sons of the prophets. Well, behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes each. What do you think Naaman's going to say? If you don't look at the next verse. Remember, his heart's been changed. He's jumped down off of his horse. Is, all, is everything okay? What's wrong? You need me to come back for something? Uh, no, Elisha sent me out. This is what's going on. What do you think? Verse 23, Naaman said, Be pleased to take not just one talent, take two. He doubles up on him. He doubles up on him. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, that's Naaman's servants, and they, he sends his servants back with Gehazi to carry it because Gehazi probably couldn't have carried it all by himself. So what Gehazi went to ask for, Naaman says, man, I'll give you, I'll give you everything you got. Don't just take one, take two. Don't take one change of clothes for these guys, take two. He lavishes. His love is such... Based on the healing he's received, he's ready to give it all. And Gehazi's probably thinking, I can't carry all this stuff back. What am I going to do with it? And he, so Naaman says, hey, I'll give you two of my servants. Let them carry it back for you. How about that? See ya. Naaman goes on his way, and look at what Gehazi does. When he came to the hill, uh, that's referring to Samaria. Samaria was built on a hill. When he came to a hill, he took them... From their hand, that's Gehazi, took these packages, these gifts, from the hands of the servants of Naaman. And he deposited them in his house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. You get the idea here? It's the mom who uh, is uh, dropping her kids off you know, in high school. And he says, uh, Mom, won't you just stop you know, a couple blocks away? or you know, you're dropping them off at their friend's house to spend the night, Mom, just, why don't you just stop down here, right? Just stop a couple of houses away, and I'll, I'll walk down, because you don't want to be seen and, and, you know, with your parents. That's not cool. Or maybe you don't like what your parents are driving, and so you just want to, you just want to kind of hide something. That's the picture I get here of Ghazi. He's got these servants and now he's got to, he can't just walk back into Elisha's tent with all this stuff, right? And So he stops him outside of town. He says, okay, I, I got it from here, boys. You guys go ahead, go ahead back with Naaman. He's dragging these two big bags now of loot that he wasn't expecting to have all this stuff. And he takes it and he hides it in his house. Kind of sounds like Achan, doesn't it? He hides it in his house and then he, he gets things covered up and he, and he runs back now to Elisha. And look what happens here. Verse 25. But when he went in and stood before his master... Here's what Elisha had to say to him. And again, we, we don't get, we don't, under, we don't, we're not told by the author. And I think probably on purpose. I think there's something to it. Again, another sermon for another day. We don't know how Elisha knows what happened. But look what he does. He says, where have you been, Gehazi? Where have you been? And Gehazi said, well, your servant, is he a servant to Elisha? Are we finding out? Not really. Who's actually become more of a servant? Naaman. Pretty interesting exchange here. Your servant went nowhere. I've been right here the whole time. What do we call that? We call that a lie. Verse 26, Then he said to him, and this is Elisha speaking to Gehazi, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Very important question. He says, you know, when that guy got off his horse and you were running after him, he jumped down and, and he met you halfway and said, what do you need? Is everything okay? Didn't something in your heart, didn't something from your service here with me, didn't something from the man of God go with you and impact you and, and cause some sort of questioning to go, in, to go on in your heart and say, what am I doing? Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time? And he begins to preach a little bit right here. Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Did he get all that from Naaman? No, he didn't. But the idea is that he might as well have. Exposes, it exposes Gehazi's heart. Is it really time for that? You know, you get through the first half of chapter 5. What a beautiful story. You get a guy who's up here, totally prideful, all about him. And God brings him down, humbles him, and he makes him a servant of God. Who's just willing to give everything he's got. Heart totally transformed. And then you get followed up by this guy who seemingly is up here, spiritually, who ends up where? Down here also humbled while trying to now elevate himself. Uh, all of the beginning of 2 Kings is uh, story after story of this great exchange of one guy who thinks he's here getting brought down here and another guy who's here getting lifted up, the weak becoming strong, the strong becoming weak. Some great stories, beginning of 1 Kings. Uh Verse 27, here's the sad end of Gehazi. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman. And you see the, where the chapter starts, where the story starts, it ends. The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you, Gehazi, and to your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from Elisha's presence, a leper as white as snow. That's not purity. That's an indication of his leprosy. You see the, you see the guy who was prideful? Humbles himself, a guy who appeared to be humble tries to elevate himself, and you get this—you get this ironic, grand exchange. Uh, I wanted to preach the, a message on Gehazi for a long time, not necessarily to you guys. I'm waiting on my invitation to speak to some uh, some large uh, pastors' conference men's, you know, young, uh, up and coming men's ministries group. Uh, I'll never get that invitation, by the way. But uh, this. This story is what I'm going to lay on him whenever I get that opportunity. I mean, it's it's an obvious story, right? There's obvious implications and applications for a guy who's in the ministry supposedly, who's seemingly religious, who's living with the prophet of the God he serves. I mean, he's he's there on a daily basis with Elisha. He's his right-hand man. You can't get any closer in this sense and be yet any further away than than Ghazi is. There's a message for, uh, for many who are in the ministry and, and seeking to elevate themselves at the expense of those who are coming to the grace of God. There, there's a message there. That's not, that's not where I wanted to be with you this morning. Uh, I can't say it any better than a, than a couple other pastors and theologians said it. So let me read this to you and then we'll wrap up and be done this morning. One guy put it this way in regards to Gehazi. God's power demonstrated in another's life meant little to Gehazi because he himself did not feel dependent on God's power for his own life. Religion had become a formal affair of fulfilling certain duties which life imposed upon Gehazi. And since his own life knew no deep need of the miracle of grace, he had in consequence no real appreciation of Naaman's need and therefore no realization of what had been done in him If we do not feel the urgency of our fellow's need of God, listen to this, isn't it often because we ourselves no longer feel God is indispensable, no longer know the radiance of his presence, no longer are sustained by his great love. We're not greatly moved by mankind's desperate need of God. We think man needs a great many things, the solution of his economic, international and personal problems. But I'm sure we're not concerned about his need of God. Or we would do something about it. If a man is not over concerned with making it possible for others to know God. It is because God doesn't mean very much to him. Isn't it? It's because God doesn't mean very much to him. Gehazi didn't count spiritual health worth very much because it didn't mean much to him. He, wasn't, he was much more interested in how much Naaman appreciated his restoration to physical health. All he saw was a man healed of a disagreeable disease for which he thought he ought to compensate the one who had cured him. He saw the process and he saw the results, but not the hand behind it. The miraculous was not a window through which to catch a glimpse of something wonderful beyond. An earnest of the power or willingness of God to break through the limitations that life seemed to impose on Naaman. The source of a new hope, a new faith, a new vision. It was something simply to be exploited. And now we have in Gehazi an anomaly. As far as we know, Gehazi had been an exemplary servant before this time, before this story. He he served his master well. He did everything he was supposed to do, but his heart was not right with God. He lived in the household of a man of God, but he himself was apparently not converted by this God. He had even had a part to play in the performance of A Mighty Miracle when Elisha had raised a boy from the dead just previously to this story. Gehazi had seen God's power at work, but his heart had not been changed it's a solemn thought that you can see god's power at work in people's lives and not not ever be moved you can hear the gospel and not respond to it you can be a member of a church or even a church officer or minister and still not be truly converted you can grow up in a godly household and still not be a child of god what an ironic story of Naaman humbling himself and Gehazi attempting to elevate himself. And neither one of them got what they expected. One got healing and the other got the illness. What a, what a tragic exchange for Gehazi. A guy who seemingly, seemingly uh, knew what he was supposed to know had heard what he was supposed to hear about the God. He was serving, apparently. But there's a there's a picture of two hearts here. There's a picture of two hearts here. And they are they are as different as night is from day. Apparently, God didn't mean very much to Gehazi. It was simply something to be exploited. Alright, so Um, what does this have to do with missions? I said last week that I was going to give you a little bit of a word on missions. As we uh, wrap up today, we're going to pray for those who are going to Jamaica. And as I've been thinking uh, this past week, you know, the question in my mind is what makes people go? What, what What makes this group of six or seven people from our church up here in the northeast hills of Georgia, this little town that nobody in Jamaica has ever heard of except for Radley's parents, uh, what, what makes, what makes you take a week of your vacation at your own cost, uh, spend almost a thousand dollars of money you can't, you know, can't get back, uh, go and stay nowhere actually near the water in Jamaica, but you're going to go stay up on a hill, uh, in a dorm, uh, nowhere near the Sandals Resort, by the way. And, uh, there's not going to be any air conditioning and, uh, the food is, it's, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be lavish. Okay, uh, it's going to be hot, and you're going to work at a, you're going to work at an orphanage with a bunch of deaf kids. Many of them, whom uh, their parents have probably sent them there because they don't want to deal with them, and that's how you're going to spend your. What, what would what would cause someone to want to go do that? And, you know, as I was thinking about it this week, my mind uh, my mind immediately went to the two hearts told in the story of First Kings chapter 5. It's the difference between the heart of maybe a little girl who had compassion on her owner. In the midst of everything bad, can there be a worse situation than a little girl taken captive, now she's a slave in a foreign pagan land, separated from her parents, her parents don't know where she is. And you can think of anything worse. But you get a little girl who says... I know of a prophet, and if my master would go, he would be healed. Compassion on the lost, uh, confidence in her God. Um, I think think about Elisha, who apparently just spent his life telling the truth. Not taking much for it. Thus says the Lord, and you will be healed. I even think about Naaman's servants. Who, without them, Naaman would have rode off in the sunset and died of leprosy. Never to be healed, physically or spiritually. Uh, If not for their wisdom, if not for God speaking through them. No, never named. I think about their wisdom. I think about uh, about Naaman himself. A guy who, who, by all indications, had his own things to brag about recognized he had this one problem. He was going to die. I've got to take care of this. And upon being healed by God, he said, I'll give this God everything I have. He placed his faith in something that seemed foolish at the outset. God comes through. His love response to God's healing is to, is to do whatever. Total heart change. So where are you in this story? All right, Where are you in this story? Where are those that would go? Uh, a couple things. As I, as I know people who go, okay? Compared to people who stay for um, often no real good reason. Uh, people who go, uh, one of the things they have in common is they, they seem to have a compassion for those who need healing. They have a compassion for the lost, like the little girl. Uh, they have a confidence that their God will heal them. And so they're willing to say, go, go to go to the prophet in the land of Israel. He will heal you. Uh, The other thing I see is they uh, they seem to be completely or most often in their life, selfless. Selfless. Uh, Some of us may not have chose to go on this Jamaica trip for a number of good reasons. Maybe you really didn't have the money. Maybe you really didn't have the week off. Uh, maybe you really didn't have uh, someone to watch your kids. Uh, maybe it was just a really bad time for your family, your business, etc., etc. Th- there are there are legitimate good reasons, okay? But listen, don't don't talk yourself into a legitimate and good reason when there is none, okay? And as I thought about this we- this week, uh, I-, I wonder if the Gehazi syndrome doesn't doesn't actually impact the answer to why do some go and some don't. I think some don't go because it's not because their money isn't there, not because of the time off's not there. They simply don't go because this, this thing that they're doing, religiously, spiritually speaking, um, is something they do. And primarily, when you really nail it down, it's about them. It's not about, it's not about the lost who need healing. It's not about their God who can heal. It's about them. What is this, what is this church thing? What is this religion thing going to do for me? What's it going to do for me? So I'm going to pray that God raise up more in our body who who more reflect this little girl, who more reflect uh, Elisha, who more reflect the heart of Naaman even, and even the wisdom of Naaman's servants. I pray we reflect more of that than we do the heart of Gehazi. All right.